Tegan, it would be only a minor exaggeration for me to tell you that today is one of my favorite days of the year. I would argue potentially the most optimistic day of the year. Well, you're obviously talking about the winter solstice. Yes. So you gave, yes, you gave that away as we're sitting here and it's almost dark at four o'clock. Yes, which some might feel is highly depressing. I mean, here we are. It's, yep. Uh, just after four o'clock and it'll be dark very soon. Some would find that depressing. Not this guy. No, it's because you're looking forward to those days, you know, in just a few months where it's warm outside, you're having dinner with friends outside and it's still light at eight o'clock. And it's not even several months from now. It starts tomorrow. Every day for the next six months, we get just a little bit more sunshine. That's optimistic. That's that's Can I call you sunshine from now on? (laughs) You cannot. But you can talk to me about Colorado. Oh, so you want to bring darkness into the world right now. We're going to talk about Donald Trump, huh? We're going to talk about Colorado. We're going to talk about Donald Trump. We're going to talk about a 4-3 decision. And we're going to talk about the Supreme Court of the United States, which, as far as I can tell, seems to have about 75 different ways that they could potentially influence the next U.S. presidential election. Well, I did get one thing right this week, Chris, which is, you know, within minutes of the Colorado ruling, I predicted that Trump's Republican rivals were going to rally around him pretty quickly and that they would not take this opportunity to actually try to beat him in the Republican primary. Instead, they all rallied around him to defend him, which is probably why no one's really challenging him at this point. So we've all heard a lot of analysis on this, and two things are coming to mind. One is, yes, you're 100% correct. No one, even Chris Christie, the most surprising, obviously, given the fact that you know he's running his whole campaign basically as an anti-Trump campaign. But what I'm wondering, this strategy appears to be, the needle that they appear to be trying to thread is, oh, no, 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 we can't have the courts disenfranchise American voters. The court should not get in the way of taking somebody off the ballot. And yet, isn't this just another example of the chaos that Donald Trump brings? That's the most aggressive that I'm hearing them being is, oh no, Colorado absolutely should not have ruled this way. Yes, let's get this in front of the Supreme Court. Supreme Court should overturn this. You know, we hope nine to nothing or something close to unanimous, because I think we can all agree they would argue that the courts should not be deciding our presidential candidates. But by the way, you know, I'm just kind of saying out of the side of my mouth, isn't this the chaos that we don't want anymore for Donald Trump? That's what they, I think, are trying to navigate. Good luck to them. As you point out, that's exactly why no one is, to exaggerate the point, within 50 points of Trump, at least not in uh, Iowa, if you believe those polls. No, but nonetheless, you know, we have this consistent uh, media narrative. You see it just repeatedly about how Nikki Haley is surging. There's beginning to be a consolidation of sorts around Nikki Haley. This is what we are constantly reading about. And, you know, the fact that Mike Pence dropped out and Tim Scott dropped out and your friend Doug Burgum dropped out. You remember him? All of these people have dropped, dropped. (laughs) Nobody remembers poor Doug. All these people have dropped out of the race and that this support, this anti-Trump support would consolidate behind a candidate. Well, it's true. Republican voters are consolidating behind a candidate. It's just that his name's Donald Trump. And that's where the consolidation is happening. When you look at the polling averages from the beginning of this primary race, I mean, it is shocking. You go to the very beginning, you go before the race really started, Ron DeSantis was actually within a handful of percentage points of Donald Trump. 
And Donald Trump now in the national polling averages is about 62%, which is extraordinary because, of course, you can do the math, Chris. No matter if all of the 38% that is anti-Trump right now consolidates together, you're still going to lose by you know 24 points. So it is kind of rid- ridiculous that we continually see this narrative out there. Trump is on his way of sealing this nomination within the next month or two. Yes, it certainly does appear that Trump is going to run away with this. We also, I hope, are going to talk a little bit about polling, maybe a lot of bit about polling later in this conversation. That may um, give you another opportunity to talk about narrative and media narrative and the changing. But the fact that Trump is in the position that he is in and the narrative that we had heard previously that now is being turned on its head, the part of this, and, and you and I were talking about this earlier, some of my frustration around the whole Colorado situation where my energy is largely being directed. And I heard somebody else talking about this and it was like, yeah, that feels exactly right. Is I think it was a seven vote uh, Colorado Supreme Court, four versus three. Well, you know, the seven votes that could have uh, actually addressed and probably should have addressed where, where we are right now. And the person who stood um, at the vanguard of blocking that was Mitch McConnell. So Mitch McConnell- Very very true. Very true. The the opportunity existed to address, was there an insurrection? Did uh, Donald Trump in the role of president of the United States violate his oath and act in a way that was insurrection or a counter to the role of the, the president? And among the things that McConnell said was, well, you know, there's no doubt that what he did was wrong or something like this, whatever it was exactly that McConnell said. But did he commit a crime? That needs to be decided by a court. Exactly. A court is where you go to. And now a court has decided that, according to this court, by the rule of the 14th Amendment, he violates the requirements in order to be able to run. And now the the commentary is the exact opposite. Well, you know, this should have been decided. This isn't something that needs to be decided by a court. This should be decided by the voters or perhaps by the voters' representatives who did not choose to convict. So if they did not choose to convict, how can a court go ahead and take away his right to run based on something that he was never convicted of doing? So no surprise, just new frustration, I would say, about the point that one wants to argue simply depends on the conclusion that one wants to see exist. Well, maybe Mitch McConnell was swayed by Senator Susan Collins, who, as you recall, famously declared that Donald Trump has learned his lesson. By the way, fact check, true. He did learn his lesson. And he, <laughs> That's a good point. He just took, he took the wrong conclusion from it, but yes. He, he took the one that made the most sense to him. There's so many examples of kicking the can of you know not wanting to take responsibility. By the way, if McConnell wanted to make the argument that I'm looking at the videotape from January 6th, then I just don't see anything there. Then, you know, okay, a lot of people would disagree, obviously, but that might be consistent. But to say, oh, no, 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 I see what was there. And yes, that was horrendous. And that was terrible. And that has no place. But, you know, was that a crime? Was Is it something that should be punished? Well, that's what the courts are for. And now that the courts have taken a stand on an adjacent issue, or maybe not so adjacent, actually, an issue that is a direct derivative of that event, you know, now the commentary is, well, this is no place for the courts to be. 
Well, it's interesting about how all of this is playing in the presidential race is Ron DeSantis had an interview on the 700 Club. He's obviously trying to appeal to evangelicals in Iowa. He needs to do well in Iowa. He needs to probably win in Iowa to have any chance. But nonetheless, he's trying to do as well as he can. He's trying to appeal to evangelicals. And David Brody, the host who interviewed DeSantis, asked him, is there anything you regret about how you ran this campaign? And DeSantis said, I would say if I could change one thing, I wish Trump hadn't been indicted on any of this stuff. It distorted the primary. It just crowded out everything, sucked out a lot of oxygen. That's what DeSantis's takeaway was when one of his rivals, his top rival, the front runner, was indicted four times on 91 criminal counts. He just wishes it wouldn't happen because it helped him. Never did Ron DeSantis think that the problem with his campaign was that he wasn't running against this guy. He was literally trying to appeal to his voters. He never challenged him. He never said being indicted four times on 91 criminal counts is disqualifying. You know, Trump has been disqualified by most common standards. He's not only been disqualified by the 14th Amendment, he's been disqualified in every other way that makes political sense. You should not nominate a candidate who's been indicted four times. It would seem bad politics, yet Ron DeSantis thinks, oh, he just wishes it didn't happen because every single time we see one of these things, Trump has been able to use the rally around the flag effect. He's being attacked. He whips up support. His support grows every single time. And meanwhile, Ron DeSantis is wondering why he's polling at 8% in the polls. It's absurd. As I hinted at a moment ago, the Supreme Court of the United States now has many, many ways in which it can influence, which it will influence. Regardless, either way a decision goes, up or down, will influence the election. So there are two major issues that will be in front of the Supreme Court. One is obviously the Colorado decision. The other one is uh, Jack Smith's request to hurry up and decide, does the president have immunity for any actions or crimes that occurred while in office? And he's asked the Supreme Court to um, you know, fast track that decision, and they are going to come back with you know, first a decision on whether they will actually make a decision on that in the short term. I mean, they did, did decide to take the case, and then um, assuming that they do decide to you know actually um, rule on it that should come you know in the next month and a half two months as we and others have discussed two super important areas where the Supreme Court could either invalidate Trump's presidency in the Colorado case or really hamper it in the Jack Smith case potentially really hamper it in the Jack Smith case or not so monumental decisions that will affect the vote as many folks are saying, you know, probably bigger than, certainly in a way not since Bush v. Gore, maybe even bigger than Bush v. Gore. Yet this is a Supreme Court that has horrendous standing with the American people. A, a Supreme Court where of the nine justices, one, Clarence Thomas can't seem to get out of the news in terms of boats and trips and vacation homes and, you know, ways in which, uh, you know, he seems to have really cool friends. I mean, two, Gorsuch, who is in the seat because Merrick Garland is not, and Amy Coney Barrett, who's in the seat because what was appropriate four years earlier that, you know, you can't 
have a president in the last whatever year of the presidency nominate and get approved a new justice. Well, you know, turns out four years later, that wasn't the rule anymore. And Amy Coney Barrett was, was able to go in after Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. So you've got the Supreme Court that has, you know, to say the least, some public confidence issues, and yet these monumental decisions that will influence the next election, regardless of which way those decisions go, that's in their hands. Um, how are you feeling about that? Well, you know, when I've been thinking about this election, you know, you t- to coin the Donald Rumsfeld phrase you think about the known unknowns. And the biggest known unknown that we've had up until this point has really been the third party. Who is going to run on the third party ticket? And will that person or people draw enough support away from one of the candidates? But the other, and perhaps the bigger known unknown right now is what will the Supreme Court do? Will the Supreme Court rule that Trump has violated the 14th Amendment? I mean, that would upend the election immediately because all of a sudden the Republicans' favored choice would no longer be eligible to run. But the other one, which I think is also interesting, is whether or not Donald Trump had absolute immunity as president. And that's one that could actually end up biting Donald Trump if he actually wins that. Because you know, consider this case where the Supreme Court rules that Donald Trump has absolute immunity and Joe Biden, the sitting president, says, huh, that's interesting. I have absolute immunity and orders Donald Trump locked up immediately. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where it's like you might not want to wish, wish for that uh, if, if that's the case, because you're not the president now. Another challenge for the Supreme Court is, do you have an over-under on the probability of Clarence Thomas recusing himself from any of these decisions? I would be one of the most surprising things I've seen all year. Vegas will not take the bet, right? There's no way, right? He's not recusing himself. I I could not see that, no. No, nobody could see that. As far as we know, there are not emails from Clarence Thomas arguing the things that Ginny Thomas was arguing. Those were all uh, from his spouse. But still, there are you know very, 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 very credible requests, to put it mildly, for him to recuse. You and I certainly don't think that he will. I think most folks don't believe that he will. I just keep coming back to, the, to where these monumental decisions are in the hands of the Supreme Court, which has such public reputational challenges. I'm certainly concerned about where that goes. Anything else that you have on this? Otherwise, uh, I want to turn to uh, another person who has some public reputational challenges. <laughs> well, I think you're I think you're absolutely right on that. I mean, no matter how the Supreme Court rules on this 14th Amendment issue, uh, roughly half the country is going to be upset with them. So according to a poll that I saw this morning is roughly 55% of Americans think Donald Trump should be excluded from the ballot because he was involved in an insurrection against the government. And that means roughly 45% think he should not. So no matter what the Supreme Court does, they're going to have angry people on the, on the other side. It's going to continue, as you said, to chip away at their legitimacy. So the Supreme Court is in a tough position, which is probably why watch them come up with some interesting way to sidestep this issue and to not directly rule on the question at hand, but to somehow move it aside. But I'm not as much of a legal wizard to figure out how they might do that. But I, I bet John Roberts has some pretty smart clerks looking to do exactly that. And the person who could use some help from some smart clerks? Who's that, Chris? That would be Rudy Giuliani. Let's move to uh, (laughs) another person with reputational challenges. I know that I I have a point of view about the Giuliani 
Giuliani mess um, and about the coverage of it. Actually, I have dueling points of view. What's your take as we are recording this uh, just a couple of hours ago, Giuliani filed for bankruptcy. Any thoughts on Rudy? Well, I think when we're talking about legitimacy of our legal system and of people, powerful people being held accountable, it is actually a situation where a person who was at the right-hand side of a president of the United States during a very challenging time for our country committed crimes, defamed these two election workers in Georgia, and is being held accountable. So it's actually my initial reaction to the entire verdict um, into the penalty against Giuliani was that he's actually being held accountable. And while so many of us are looking for people Donald Trump and the people around him to be held accountable for how they have damaged this country and damaged this democracy. This is one instance where I believe that that has actually happened. And while it's kind of absurd that Rudy Giuliani would have $148 million in damages, I think it's very clear that the jury wanted to make sure that a message was sent. This is not a game and that these people's reputations and their lives are not just yours to play with. And the fact that Rudy Giuliani had to file for bankruptcy in order to just get some breathing room from his creditors while he appeals this verdict, I think that says everything. I mean, Giuliani is essentially, you know, he's on the verge of being penniless. Yes. The accountability factor is huge. And um, for many folks, there is satisfaction around that. My feeling on the whole Giuliani mess, first of all, I my first sentiment goes, as I'm sure yours does, to the two women. I mean, I, you can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. And as it's been pointed out a number of times, can you imagine volunteering for or getting paid? I mean, how, you know, wh- what were they getting paid to do that job? $10, $12 an hour, $15 an hour, like, you know, work that is centered on serving the community and to have that happen to them, to have that happen to any American is reprehensible. I look at the whole Giuliani thing and and what's been happening with him, obviously, over the last several years. And and we're all shocked. No one can understand. How could he act this way? How could he have thrown everything away after the heights that he reached after 9-11? And I not only agree with all that, and I not only feel that the loss is obviously Giuliani's, but I really think that there's a loss for America and each of us in what's happened with Giuliani. I mean, I came to New York the first time under Dinkins, and the city was in trouble. I will never, ever, ever forget my very first night in New York City. I was, you know, walking around and I saw, I don't know if you remember the movie The Princess Bride and the R-O-U-S's the rodents of unusual size, that <laughs> those giant rat-like creatures that lived in the fire swamps. I swear to you, I saw one walking down Amsterdam Avenue the first night that I was in New York. It was the biggest rat I have ever seen. The thing was huge. And by the way, it was his sidewalk. And you know, I, he gave me a look like, you better go to the other side, man. And you couldn't stop at a stoplight without your car being overtaken by squeegee people. I'm exaggerating the point a little bit. And and look, I, I am aware many, many people feel um, with good reason that Giuliani overstepped a number of civil liberties in bringing New York and in moving New York uh, forward. Um, and I can't argue with a lot of that. What you also can't argue with 
is that New York City was absolutely a different place at the end of his being mayor there. He, you know, the city regained its incredible stature. And he likely did more, as we all know, to bring Americans together and feel good about themselves after 9-11 than anyone else. I heard the commentary recently that, I mean, if he had just stopped right then and done nothing else after September 12th, you likely would have had every elementary school, the day after the day he died, the, every elementary school in the tri-state region would have been named after Rudy Giuliani. Your point's a good one, because Giuliani, obviously, we focus on a lot of the problems that he had, but the, I'll go back even 10, 15 years earlier than your first time in New York, when from Connecticut, we would drive into the city, and I swear to you, not a single time did we not drive into the city where you couldn't see abandoned cars on the side of the highway that had been stripped that had been set on fire. I mean, it was amazing. It's like one of these movies, right? Where you just see a city that's just gone to hell. And so while Rudy Giuliani obviously has his problems, the difference between New York City in the late 1970s and the city that Rudy Giuliani governed you know, on 9-11 was markedly different. New York had changed and Giuliani and then after him, Michael Bloomberg, they deserve an awful lot of credit for that. So that's, you know, those of us who grew up around here, you know, that's what we remember. We remember a city that was literally being transformed. And so much of that was due to Giuliani. But I will also say to focus in on some of Giuliani's worst parts, we may have learned this week that Giuliani is now financially bankrupt. But in so many ways over the last 20 years, we've learned that Giuliani was morally bankrupt as well. And that so many of the ways that he treated people, both broad groups of people, but also individually, was wrong. And that, you know, at his core, I think he was morally bankrupt. And that behavior has now led to him being financially bankrupt as well. It's kind of a good pair for him. Listen, that's a really great, great, great point because there were very, very strong arguments and reasonable arguments, you know, many of which I agreed with, that he exhibited moral bankruptcy in terms of treatment of people during the 90s when he was mayor and how in the name of cleaning up the city, um, really, really trampling civil rights. But it was with the goal of cleaning up the city, you know, a problem that many people, as you just described, as I described, and, you know, your talk about the 1970s always makes me think of uh, the Howard Cosell line, the ladies and gentlemen, the Bronx is burning, which I think was, <laughs> you know, during the World Series in 77 or 78. Potentially, there is a line to be drawn from those nuggets of disregard for certain people, whether those were the squeegee people or, or other people, and the way in which that was forgiven by many because the results of that, of his actions were to really turn the city around. And yet that was in there. It was evident. It continued to evolve and finally metatastized as he took roles within the administration and then as he took roles around the post 2020 vote. And so, you know, I would have to really go back and look at the news clips and the news files a lot more from the 1990s. But 
there could be an argument that what we're seeing today, the evidence of that existed even back then, and it's just transformed. And whereas it was in an effort to fix New York City, now in 2023, and well, let's say 2020 to 2023, it was in the effort to humiliate and defame, according to the court, these two women and others, perhaps, in the name of trying to uh, steal the vote. That's why it was a big story this week. You know, Rudy Giuliani is a big story. I mean, when you talk about both his past performance as mayor, his position on 9-11 as helping to rally the country, it is impossible for me to think of any public figure who has had a quicker fall and a more solid fall than Rudy Giuliani. I mean, I don't recall what his approval rates were around 9-11, but they were sky high. I mean, absolutely sky high, bipartisan approval for his tenure as mayor particularly during that, that time after 9-11. And the fact that it is now where he is now literally financially bankrupt, he's got no influence, no power. I'm sure Donald Trump isn't calling him right now to uh, wish him well. One must wonder what Giuliani thinks at night. Was all of this worth it? Because it just doesn't seem like it was worth it to anybody who has got half a brain. That was a softball to throw to me. I'm not going to swing at that one. All I can say is, you're right. It is unfathomable when one looks at it from the outside, as you and I are. I can't pretend to get inside Rudy Giuliani's mind. I don't know the state of his mind now. And perhaps it's not the same as it was previously. Maybe it's not the same as it was 20, 30 years ago. There's one other topic that I want to uh, talk with you about before we head into this holiday weekend time for family and presence and joy and goodwill towards all others. And that's polling. By the way, speaking of polling, Santa Claus continues to poll very high. I'm a big fan. You're a big fan? Well, you know, I'm going to wait till Christmas morning and see, uh, see, what, see how see he does. He, <laughs> see, I'm so optimistic with this, you know, winter solstice thing. I'm very pro Santa. Some of the other polling, depending on uh, who you're rooting for, hasn't looked so good. Politico wrote a piece earlier this week talking about how it was conventional political wisdom that what doesn't kill Trump politically makes him stronger, at least within the GOP. Every sling, arrow, and piece of legal jeopardy seems to bolster his base. Uh, this was borne out by some striking findings in that New York Times-Siena College poll, we all remember that one, which was conducted, of course, before the Colorado News, which finds Trump steamrolling to the Republican nomination, despite the fact that 58% of voters and 66% of independents think he's committed major federal crimes. Even as the share of Republicans who think he's committed crimes has nearly doubled, party voters have grown increasingly loyal to Trump, who now commands 64% in the primary nationwide. In addition, Trump support in Iowa has ticked up to 50%, a new Emerson College survey finds, while Nikki Haley is nudged ahead of DeSantis for second. Trump's success looks so solid now that the only question is whether he's setting expectations too high for his margin of victory. Meanwhile, Joe Biden's campaign, having watched Trump overtake him in the polls, even as the former president's legal entanglements have ballooned, might need to hope that voters simply haven't tuned in to this year's Trump show yet. In addition, you ran a piece this week from a professor about the state of polling. Is now the time? Should we be paying attention to the polls? Do they matter? Do the story that they appear to be telling, is that the real story of what's really going on, of what will occur? Why do they matter? Yeah, great question. And there's an easy answer for this. 11 months ahead of an election, they have almost no predictive power. 
So we should be discounting them heavily if that's what you're looking for. What they do say, which is interesting, is they do suggest the way things would be today, given how our politics are. But keep in mind the fact that Donald Trump is in the headlines constantly, whether for legal issues or the fact that he's running for the Republican nomination right now. Joe Biden is not campaigning yet. He actually just came out with his first advertisement, but he's not really campaigning. I would expect that that will change quickly early next year, particularly since Donald Trump should wrap up the nomination relatively quickly. But for everybody who gets worried about the polls right now, I would just encourage them to go back to 1988, the summer of 1988, when Mike Dukakis led George H.W. Bush by 17 percentage points. And four months later, he lost the election by a sizable margin to Bush. Polls are interesting. Polls drive narratives. You know, our media landscape, so much of it is being driven by polling information to help people understand what's going on out there. But I think some of it is relevant. I think we can learn some things about today. What should people be looking at if any of us want to take something of utility and not futility from current polls at any given time? What should one actually be looking at? What conclusions should one be trying to make? Is there anyone who you like to turn to for thoughtful, responsible interpretation of polls? The polls that matter most to me are not the horse race polls, but they're the polls on issues such as the economy. Because remember, as James Carville made famous, it's the economy, stupid. And I think that that is still going to be the most important, if not one of the most important issues, as well as abortion. I think abortion is going to be an issue. It's been proven in the special elections that we've had since the Supreme Court decision invalidating Roe v. Wade. So I'd keep an eye on, are those polls changing on people's feelings about abortion rights. You know, when you have stories about this woman in Texas who had to leave the state to get an abortion because the courts denied her the right to have an abortion, even though her own life was potentially threatened and certainly her fertility was threatened if she were to give birth to a child who had no chance of surviving, those are the types of stories that move these numbers and that move polls. And so if I was a Democrat and I was interested in reading some polling data, I'd focus on the economy. I'd focus on abortion. I think those are the two biggest issues Joe Biden potentially has in his pocket and could lead him to reelection. You know, and then there's other issues on the other side, which we've talked about on this podcast in the past. The ones that tend to favor Republicans are immigration and crime. If those two issues are seen as becoming more important and are being prioritized by more voters, then I think that that's something to keep an eye on right now. Otherwise, these horse race polls really don't mean a lot to me. I, I bet if you were to poll Americans right now on who they thought the candidates would be in November of 2024, a significant number of them can't believe that it's going to be Joe Biden against Donald Trump again, particularly when you have a media narrative that Nikki Haley's surging. There are Americans out there who think that, oh, maybe Donald Trump won't be the nominee. You know, there are others who think that somehow Joe Biden is going to step down at some point for another candidate, that there's some sort of scheme out there. So until the candidates are set, which won't be until next summer, I don't think these horse race polls mean that much. Really useful point. Focus on polls that examine the issues. And to the extent that it is possible, don't pay quite as much attention to the horse race polls. But let me tell you, it's really hard not to pay attention to them. They drive so much uh, of the media that many of us consume 
Speaking of focus, we will turn now to the new year and to podcasts coming up. We have a mailbag episode coming up. We have a look ahead at 24 coming up, which may also include a little look back at 23. And uh, we will come out again. There will be one more episode before the end of the year. But for now, that's all I've got, Tegan. I hope that Santa pulls well in your house this holiday. Thanks, Chris. And I got you an early present. Just want to tell you is that every day from now on gets a little bit longer. So enjoy. I'll take it. Bye, Tegan. Bye, Chris.